0: The Latter-day Lives Podcast is not owned or operated by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any opinions expressed or implied in this recording are solely those of the host and guests and not of any specific organization, unless otherwise stated. Hello, friends. Welcome to Episode 168 of the Latter-day Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Rapier. Thank you so much for checking in with us again this week. We've got such a fantastic show for you. Now, when we brought the show back, we did mention that we were going to do some different kinds of shows, not just the usual biography of one person. And uh, this is one of those episodes. It's our first one where we are bringing back past guests. Uh, Nick Galletti, who's been on the show actually multiple times. Uh, We only did his life story once, uh, but he also came back and interviewed me for our 100th episode. Um, Nick is a dear friend of mine and is my barbecue partner, but that's not why he's on the show. He is on with Jen Roach Who is one of our listeners' favorite guests? You may remember her story. She was abused when she was young, became clergy in another faith, and then found the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints and became a member. Uh, We just adore Jen. And Jen and Nick have gotten together and written a new book. Uh, It's called Codependent Discipleship. Uh, and it is not a how-to guide. It's not how to become a codependent disciple. It's actually uh, quite a bit about codependency and the role of faith in that and how sometimes even within our callings or within the church, we can become codependent. And Nick is very vulnerable in this book and shares his experiences with uh with codependency. And I realized today that we had a book about anxiety last week. We've got this book this week. I promise we're not shifting over to being just a mental health show, but it is such an important topic and and things that we need to be discussing and hearing about. And you are just going to love this book. I was able to get an advanced copy of it, and I am fascinated by it. I love this book. It is excellent and Of course, Jen and Nick are just the best. You will love this conversation. And coming up this week in my Latter day Life, it's all about seeing people. It's all coming up. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this week's conversation. And today here on the Latter-day Lives podcast are two friends of mine that I could not be more excited to have back on the show to talk about a really wonderful new book that they have written and also that they were kind enough to give me an advanced copy of Jen Roach and Nicoletti. Welcome back to the show. Hello. Hello. I am so happy to be on with you guys. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, This is uh, our first kind of... uh, catching up episode, I think we're going to call them and we're going to catch up with you guys. But if the audience wants to hear your stories, we just looked it up. Uh, Jen, your amazing episode that everybody freaked out over and just loved was episode 149. And uh, Nick, you are definitely our most most appeared, appeared. reference no, I don't know. I don't know about reference, but definitely most appeared, uh, most episodes you've appeared on, uh, your own life story was episode 29. We did a crossover when you interviewed, uh, the cast of meet the Mormons in episode 33. And you interviewed me for our 100th episode. And, uh, and, and then actually also you submitted some stuff for the Christmas episodes. So It happens. whole lot of Nicoletti. Uh, Nick (laughs) is also my barbecue partner, so we got that happening. Uh, Jen, uh, tell us where you're recording from.
1: Seattle, Washington.
0: Beautiful Seattle. Love it. And Nick, uh, you're up in West Valley City.
2: West Valley City, Salt Lake area.
0: Fantastic. And just as a kind of a quick recap reminder, uh, Jen, and and seriously, if you have not listened to Jen's episode, I've re-listened to it a couple of times myself it's a phenomenal story it's a starts off with some some tragic times of uh, some abuse at the hands of uh, clergy of another faith it uh, takes Jen on an incredible life journey of uh, faith where Jen actually becomes an uh, ordained clergy of another faith and through the most beautiful series of events uh, finds her way to the church where she is such a blessing for all of us and can Jen I,
1: can I give you a quick update
0: please yes we would love that
1: when I talked to you last time, I was the only member in my family. And since then, my son has been baptized. Woohoo! That's
0: right. awesome.
1: He got baptized in the Provo River.
0: Oh my gosh. That they is fantastic. Meeting,
1: they weren't meeting inside. So they said, you want to do it? You got to do
0: it in the river. That is beautiful. I was actually just walking on the Provo River Trail this morning. That is beautiful. Congratulations, Jen. That is neat. Awesome. Uh Jen, remind us, though, because we're going to be talking a lot about the clinical side of your life. Uh, tell us again your your education background and, and your your career.
1: Yeah. So I'm a licensed mental health therapist. I have two master's degrees, um, a master's in mental health counseling and a master's in divinity. I see mostly clients who have kind of garden variety, anxiety and depression, um, lots of trauma, lots of PTSD clients. Stuff like
0: that, yeah. Gosh, that is such a, a blessing of what you do in your work, and that's gonna that's gonna be a big part of this book. And uh, then you go back to any of Nick's episodes, but go back to the original one to hear Nick's life story. Nick is one of the uh, OG, the Godfathers of the Latter Day Saint podcast movement. Nick, how many how many podcast episodes do you think you've hosted?
2: I would say that the last figure I got was around a little over 850. My goodness.
0: Unbelievable. Yeah. Too much
2: talking on my part.
0: It's a lot. No, that's fantastic. And before we get into the book, Nick, let's talk really quickly about your newest podcast project because I love it. Tell us, tell us a little bit about it.
2: Well, I'm glad that you love it. Um, It's called Freelance Legislator. It's the first, actually, episode or podcast that I've done that was not Latter-day Saint-related directly. But the idea was that I wanted to have a political podcast where we didn't talk political party. We talked policy, and we actually go through the process of learning about how to write and craft legislation. And we're actually going to do that. We're going to try and come up with different ideas, and the episodes are our research into the idea. And eventually we'll we'll write something that we hope will present on our website and allow people to share with their own legislators and maybe get something good, positive passed. I love it. It's a big
0: departure, but I, I love it. It and is. So uh, first of all, before we get into the book, tell us, and, and I'm just going to leave most of these open. So Jen or Nick, either one of you can jump in. Tell us how you guys originally connected.
1: Um, one of Nick's many podcasts <laughs> is the, the LDS Mission podcast, and I had listened to several episodes. I really liked them, and I had just converted to the church. My conversion story is kind of fun and a little bit unique, and I thought, oh, I wonder, like, I didn't even know Nick. I just wrote to him, and I'm like, hey, I got a great story Do you want to do a podcast, and he said yes, and um, that's how we met. Is that how it went down? Is that what happened? Yeah. Yeah. I just
2: got an email and she said, I've got this story that I think would be good for your listeners. And as I, she had a website, I don't know if how often you update it anymore, myconvertlife.com. And she, she put out her story and, and her ongoing story. And I started reading some of the articles that were there and found the idea fascinating. And so when we did the interview, it was great because she's got this incredible dynamic, wonderful testimony, yeah, and it's, it's unique, but yet shared some very common things that interested me and I thought people could connect with. So we had her on and shared it and shared it on, I think, the Fair Mormon podcast, and it, people just started becoming more and more interested in Jen and her stories.
0: It's, it's awesome. And then actually, Nick, you reached out and said, guess who you should have on Latter-day Lives? And that's how Jen and sure. I connected. I got to have Jen in my home to record, and that was just awesome. And no offense, because I know a lot of my past guests listen, but uh, there are five episodes that I consider kind of keystone episodes that when people say, hey, if I'm just going to try the show – what are they, Jen? You are one of the five episodes. So ah, I love
1: that! Thank it, you.
0: It's 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 a phenomenal story, and it's not to say that Nick's story isn't amazing, or Nick interviewing me isn't amazing. But go listen to Jen's story too. All right. Excellent. So, um, all right. So let's get into this. So, how did the book come about, and and then we'll talk a
2: little bit more about the book. Well, I'll go ahead and take that one. Um, the book, by the way, is called Codependent Discipleship. Yeah, that's and,
0: good that we start off with the title. <laughs> with the Title, right? And, and it's got a,
2: a sub, a subtitle of "Not a How-To Guide." So we're we're definitely not trying to teach people how to be codependent. the The idea for the book came along from my own personal, like, life experience. Uh, we can get into this a little bit later, but essentially, I was, I am going through the codependent process or overcoming those impulses and uh, I felt like as I got deeper into my own story and my life experiences and therapy that I became interested and aware of the concept of codependency and how it intertwined with my faith. And so the way that I kind of function in life is if there's something that grabs me and interests me I start to write it out as if I was to write a book, and that's my personal study. Like, that's how I will do my study. And eventually, if I feel that there's something there or enough content there, then I will continue to develop it into a a book, which is exactly what happened with this one. I've had other thoughts. I've had other ideas. They just were, you know, a couple pages. They didn't go very far. The timing on
1: this was also great. The timing was great because the pandemic started and we both got sent home from work.
0: <laughs> that is good timing. And actually, a lot of books are coming out that are almost like they, they expected to have a lot of pandemic babies There are a lot of pandemic <laughs> books and podcasts that are coming Look out. Babies, yeah. So, so before, we're, we're going to jump back into your story in a minute, Nick. But Jen, will you give us a, a digestible definition of codependency before we jump into what spiritual codependency is?
1: Yeah, well, the concept of codependency, of course, started in the Alcoholics Anonymous community, right? A codependent is a non-alcoholic who makes it easier for the alcoholic to stay addicted, right? So they're the one who is compelled to solve that person's problems for them and make it easier for them to stay kind of sick and stuck. The definition has expanded since then. That was really in the, like, 1970s, Um And it applies to lots of situations now, but the basic idea is the same. It's a person who wants to rescue someone else, sometimes out of a need to escape their own anxiety or their own troubles in life. They want to go fix somebody else's or they feel so overly responsible for them. They just feel compelled to solve that person's problems, even when it would be better that that person solved them themselves.
0: Mm great, great definition of it. So Nick, let's jump into your story because it's the kind of the, the, the basis of, you know, you tell your story at the very beginning of the book, and this is not necessarily spiritual codependency, which is where we're going to go. But you talk about codependency and you're very open about your story with you and your wife. Can you give us kind of a brief overview of that story?
2: I should probably say that I have not always been so open. If you go back and listen to episode 29, I don't even touch on this stuff. No, not at all. And and as much time as we've spent together, Sean, I there's stuff that when you read the book you said you you didn't know that about me. I I guess I don't feel like this is something that I can fully uh, come to terms with. So, pardon me if I if I give a shortened version here, but my life experience growing up, I was I think I may have even mentioned this before, my father isn't a member, but my mother is. And so, when I became a deacon, I was taught very heavily that I was the priesthood holder of the home, and that it was my responsibility to carry that banner. And I took that very seriously. I didn't want to let my mom down. I didn't want to let anybody down. And from there, I developed certain habits and certain characteristics that I was I found myself concerned a lot with people who were in need in some way, to the point that I felt like that was how I wanted to make I I wanted my character to be the person that helped other people. Which on the surface, again, sounds really Christ-like and sounds wonderful. When I got married, I was a fairly independent person. I came home from my mission and I was in a good place. I Was going to school, I was working, and I felt like I was, for lack of a better term, I was in control of my future. When I got married, I had to kind of find a way to be independent, but more interdependent. And so that changes, that dynamic changes you in a way that you can't just concern yourself with what you want to do. You have to be around other people and live with other people. And in a way, we promise to help that person. We, we, promise to care for them and, and provide for them and so on. Well, then we had our first kid after about 15 months of marriage and that changed the dynamic again. And in a way we couldn't just be us. We had to, you know, have another kid involved. And with that kid came postpartum depression from my wife and we ended up losing the house that we were in. She was an apartment manager and they, let her go because uh, they were doing a condo conversion. This was in Southern California in 2004. So that was happening all over the place.
0: Sure. I, I want to touch on something really quickly too, because in the book, you talk about a phrase that I had never heard before that uh, you felt postpartum abandonment, Yeah, which I think is really powerful. I think a lot of men go through that because first of all, you only had 15 months, not not a lot of time to pour the foundation of this house, you know, and and which in the Latter-day Saint culture, sometimes that's six months longer than, you know, (laughs) some, some married couples have. And so you don't necessarily have your own married identity. You don't have years of that to fall back on. Now you're adding this kid, Heidi goes through this, this depression as you go through, well, wait a minute. Now I was getting a lot of attention from my wife now the baby's getting all this, this, this is a recipe for, for danger.
2: And I I eventually kind of decided that my identity was going to be the person that provided. And if I didn't provide, I, I was nothing. I was not valuable. I had no purpose and meaning in the relationship. And so as we were making all these different life changes and we had another kid come along as we were trying to still find our way Eventually, we decided that we needed to move to Utah, which in about 2004, we didn't have any family up here. We were we had one uncle, but that was about it. And I hadn't been really close to him in my life because he'd lived in Utah his whole life and I hadn't. So we didn't know each other that well. And when we got up here, again, second kid was only about three months old. Postpartum depression was getting even worse. She didn't have family around. We were in a new place, in a new area, and things just kept getting more and more complicated. Her depression started to get to the point where she wasn't doing much around the house. She wasn't even really having a lot of energy to take care of the kids. And so I felt, as as I saw the deficiencies that came about because of my wife's depression, I had to up my game. I had to step in in places that i wasn't stepping in before which again on the surface you sound like oh that sounds great you're helping each other out and and there's nothing that she was doing that i would say was wrong depression is what it is it's of course debilitating it's horrible um but the time came where i had started doing real estate which at the time seemed like a good idea but that's because i didn't know that 2008 was coming but um things just got really bad. I wasn't working and I wasn't able to provide. And so I started to think my wife's not happy, I'm not successful at providing for my family. My life is a total mess and it's all my fault. What can I do to fix this? So at some point I decided to try and do a service mission for LDS Family Services or what it was called at the time. And I was helping them make training videos for their therapists, which was a really good timing for me. But the problem became that I was finding that I took this so that if I, if I, I told myself, if I was righteous enough, if I was doing enough in the world, that was good that God would have to bless me. And it became very selfish in that way, even though the service that I was providing and what everybody saw on the surface was selfless It was really trying to bind my wounds.
0: I think part of it, too, as you're talking, Nick, I mean, being for me, being a man in the church uh, and being active our, our entire married life, I'm picturing how a difficult this is generally. Then you're going and sitting in elders quorum where they're saying, men, you are to be good providers, husbands and fathers and so it's getting pounded from all sides. And one of the things that your book really opened my eyes to is that in an effort to buoy people up, you're really placing a burden on them. It's really placing a burden like, hey, you, you walked into church today feeling worthless. Guess what? You can feel more worthless. <laughs> We're, you know, in an effort to help. So uh, the other side of it, too, is men were fixers. Like as soon as you said, you know, I saw this and I wanted to help, all I could hear in my head was done, because dun, that's what we do as men. We go, don't worry, I'll fix this. And yeah. that's a tremendous burden. So how did you guys find your way out of this situation?
2: As is the case with many compulsive behaviors. And I want to be clear that codependency is a compulsive behavior set mm. um, that as with most compulsive behaviors and with depression, you tend to have to hit a pretty hard rock bottom before you're able to really throw away all the rules and just give it a shot with whatever is going to fix it. And so one night I had had my fill and my wife had kind of had her fill and we were dangerously close to considering having a a divorce. We had had five kids to this point and postpartum was getting worse every time. And so it was, it was to the point where my wife was questioning whether or not she wanted to keep living. It was getting very bad. Mm. And none of us were doing anything out of malice, but we just recognized that this was not something that we could endure. And I said to my wife, I need to go to therapy I'm not asking you to go to fix you. I'm asking to go so that we to, together so that we can figure out a way for me to cope with your depression. I was consigning myself to living a life with a depressed person who was locking themselves in their room and not contributing much in life for the rest of my life if that's what it took, but I needed a therapist to help me guide through that process. Well, we just kind of did one of those random in the phone book point to that therapist, and that's where we're going to go, kind of things. Um, and luckily, the person we chose was exactly who we needed to to meet with, and so we started to see this therapist who introduced us to the concept of EMDR, which is a therapeutic modality that essentially deals with trauma. And the reason he introduced that is because. My wife had a lot of traumas in in her young age, similar to to what Jennifer had, Um, not by the hands of clergy, but by friends and family. And um, it scars you, obviously, in in ways that you just can't deal with alone. And so through the therapy, Heidi started to get better, and I started to see the light at the end of our tunnel. And why that's important is because, codependency itself is one of those things where you start to have a very blurred sense of reality and you start to assume information that isn't there. And what you assume is always tragedy. It's always the most broken scenario that you can Mm -hmm. imagine, because again, you don't know how to function. You begin to not know how to function outside of tragedy outside of difficulties and things that need to be fixed because ultimately everyone around you needs to be fixed so that your life is less chaotic and less hectic. And so at some point in your life, you you realize that like a muscle that you can tear because you have overworked it, you emotionally can just tear to pieces because a codependent can't manage the world. It can't save everything but you think that you have to, otherwise it'll collapse without it.
0: Hmm. I know that right now, uh, hundreds, if not thousands of our listeners are nodding going, I can identify that's me or that's my spouse or that's my mom and dad or my brother or my boss or my coworker, whatever. Because we see this a lot and I, I did not understand codependency at all before this book. Like, I just didn't know that much about it. Like it's fascinating. So this takes us to spiritual codependency. Jen, is spiritual codependency a known concept, or is this something that you guys came up with?
1: The concept I think is is getting more well known. Um it certainly is developed more in this book than I'm aware of in any other book for an LDS audience at least. Um
0: Is it a phrase that's out there, like if you search spiritual codependency, like is it a phrase that people are commonly using or is this kind of something more that you guys piece together?
1: Yeah, I don't think it's a phrase people are using, but if you search it, you will find our book.
2: (laughs) And you will find a couple other faiths that have talked a little bit about it, but it's not a, it's not a real heavy concept as far as the mental health side of things, considering yep. how the interplay of, of religion and codependency comes about.
0: One of the things I love about your book is it talks a lot about spiritual codependency. We've already defined codependency on this, this need to rescue people or this need to enable people. Um, but also the book... It's fascinating to me, as we talked about earlier, Now, Nick is coming from a place of having been through and figuring out for life codependency. Jen, you're coming at it from a place of therapy as a therapist and the book, like things should be, is not a therapeutic book or a religious book. It's it's both and it's, yeah, it's both. It's all of the above and it takes a holistic approach. And I think we have a tendency sometimes to say, okay, I'm going to read a therapy book for this. Then I'm going to study my scriptures. And we know that all things are spiritual. There's nothing that's only temporal. So it's a beautiful mix. Um, we've defined codependency. There, You give some great stark examples in the book of what spiritual codependency looks like, because it might be still a little bit nebulous for people. Can you give us, like two or three examples that you maybe use in the book of what spiritual codependency looks like?
1: Well, we look at it um, in a whole bunch of different ways. One of it is like how do people get codependent in their ministering relationships? Right? How do people get codependent when they're put in a leadership position like a bishop or a Relief Society president? Um, we even touch on how do people get codependent with God? There's a lot of different ways to look at it.
0: Yeah, so give us some like some examples. You 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 know used I think real experiences because you said not not her real name, not his real name. So I'm assuming they were real examples. What would that look like? Like, give us uh, that. That was what was most helpful for me when I read the examples. I went, oh, that's
2: right, that's what it is. So the real life example is a real life example, just not their real names, um, because this isn't something sure. that necessarily they want to own publicly of course but this was someone I was ministering to and what ended up happening is this individual was a mother of a young man I would say now I guess he was eight at the time who has a pretty severe version of autism that made him very hyper uh there were obviously a lot of complexities to that. Autism isn't just a one size fits all kind of thing, but she had a life plan for herself and she wanted to be the person that loved and helped people came to her neighbors and was someone they could come to with their problems and so on. But when she had this young boy and his problems soaked up so much of her life, she realized she didn't have any time for the neighbor that was Asking for the cup of laundry soap, the neighbor that needed a ride to work, and the neighbor that needed this or that, and she lived in an apartment complex, and she had a lot of needy neighbors. And what it ended up, ended up happening was that she started to feel so needed, and that everybody around her around her needed her, that she started to feel very depleted. And then she would go to church. And normally we want to look at our faith as something that gives us wings, that helps lift us and, and buoy us up. But sometimes when you go to your ward, you have people that come to you and dump their problems on you and hope that you can be the listening ear. And ultimately what ended up happening was there was no way for this person who we called Ashley to escape the people that needed her. And, When it came time for her to be, you know, to to share her experiences and look for that person to hear her story, she was almost too afraid because she was worried that she was dumping on other people the way other people had dumped on her. And so rather than find that solace and find that support, she just buried that down deep inside. And ultimately, again, the pressures of all this got to the point where she just closed off. She wouldn't answer the phone. She wouldn't, when people knocked on the door, she wouldn't answer. She got it from her family who seemed to need her for their emotional guidance. And, and it just got to be too much that she locked down. She Some codependents will go into hyperdrive and hyperfixing. Some will be overloaded and run. And she was the type that kind of went that direction. But again, she started to see her faith and the responsibilities that she you know to mourn with those that mourn to comfort those that stand in need of comfort when she didn't feel she had the energy to do that she started to feel like she was a failure as a latter day saint because she wasn't able to keep her covenants and again that just started compounding the problem so she didn't have the energy to be a mom a minister a relief society sister or any of those things because it became a trauma to her and so she ran and and eventually we shared with her a, a book that is called Codependent No More. It was actually the re- first book that really kind of watersheded this issue into the public. And it really started to help her find a way to um, detach from some of those things and to learn to say no. And we go over that a little bit in the book because saying no to yeah. people that need stuff is, is one of the, the easiest ways to uh, describe what to do. But it's one of the hardest things to actually do.
0: Jen, is it fair to say that oftentimes, um, and this is kind of what dawned on me during the book, oftentimes codependency, spiritual or otherwise, is an unhealthy expression of a healthy desire?
1: Yeah, it's taking agency to a place it was never intended to go.
0: Mm, Interesting.
1: If... We I don't know that we use these words in the book exactly, but we get a lot at this point of unless you can say no, you can't actually say yes. Yeah, like a, fr- a free yes requires a free no. Um, otherwise, you are being compelled to do it, not actually using your agency to choose to do it. Um, and I think you see that a lot.
0: What what mistakes and and uh, almost all all innocent you know leaders in the church we're, we're a lay clergy um, want to do the right things, want to help. Do you see any any maybe pitfalls that that leaders in the church fall into in an effort to help people have the desire to serve to be good fathers, mothers, husbands, wives like there's a lot of admonition to this and you guys go into this in the book there's a lot of admonition for good but maybe is done in a way that creates a codependent environment.
1: Yeah. I'll give you like a real life example. That's happening in my ward right now. I'll disguise it a tiny bit. Um, But there's a ward member who has a need that makes a whole lot of other people feel really sad and uncomfortable. And that person doesn't actually want help with this thing. And there's, people kind of breathing down their neck wanting to fix this problem for them. Mm. Um, And the temptation to be just like, all right, like, I'll like, stop bugging me. You can, you can fix this thing. I think that's there. Um, The people who are uncomfortable with the problem want to fix it to make themselves feel more comfortable. The person who owns the problem is actually okay. Owning the problem.
0: Wow. And that, in fact, it's interesting because, a codependent person, what I what I gathered from the book is a codependent person will hear the same thing that a non codependent person will hear, but they hear it completely opposite. What one of the big wow moments, and I've already told you guys, I've had so many wow moments with this book. Like I wanted to peruse it and skim it, and like I kept getting stopped and going, "Whoa!" I'd never thought of that. It's a really brilliant book. One of my favorites, and it really helped define it for me was the poem "Footprints," which we've we've heard from the pulpit or in a talk or what whatever we've heard it a million times and when i hear footprints i hear you know in the hey lord why did you forsake me and i hear it as okay jesus can carry me and that's a relief how does the codependent person possibly hear that
2: poem I, the codependent person sees the single set of footprints and thinks that they were the one carrying God. And that's a, that's a strange concept it. And in, in some ways it sounds ridiculous, but it really, the, it comes down to it that some people maybe not consciously are saying, I need to save God. I need to fix God's problems. But there are a lot of people in this world, particularly those that find, Uh, a strong attachment to social causes that sometimes what they feel they are doing is they are fixing the problems caused by other people's decisions and other people's actions. And there are those in this world that see God's commandments, the policies of God's church even, and say, these are hurting people and I need to go, I need to come around and save those other people from the harm that God is, is causing these people in their lives. I sometimes think that if, if we're using today's words, that some people don't think that God is woke. And when you, <laughs> I mean, you joke about that, but no, it's true. But, but when you, when you sit down and you think about that, how would you respond to that question? Do you think God is woke? And there are people that will say, I don't think he is. And, yeah. and, and the, the assumption there a lot is that they know better than God. Right. And so therefore, without them, God's church, God's work wouldn't happen. He, they have to be there to save and fix all of the different things that are going on because apparently God can't do it.
0: Yeah, it's an I've got to swim upstream because who else will? I, I think people, we see that, especially in the age of social media, where social media is a little bit too democratic sometimes like everybody's opinion gets weighted the same it's in a feed and not one nothing about you know one opinion is higher in the feed than another it's just in the feed so it all becomes evenly weighted so somebody says hey but what about this and then 50 other people pile on and then they go oh wow I must be this must be my my calling and then you can fall into this false sense of, yes, I'm carrying the church. I also think out of good intention, and you guys talk about this, i um, and I think it's especially true of maybe bishops, relief society presidents, that there's sort of a cycle that can form of a bishop or a relief society president gets adulation. Hey, we we couldn't do this without you. And so then they're jumping back in to save, and then they get more adulation and the person gets lifted is it? It's it's easy to fall into that cycle, isn't
2: it? Yeah, I think I think you can get into all sorts of different cycles with this, and we don't want to make we we want to make sure that we're not painting every action with codependency that that can sometimes happen just because of you sneeze doesn't mean yeah. you have a cold, um, but <laughs> in this particular case, um, one of the areas with leadership that can be very problematic is when we when we gauge our success in our callings based on the results of other people's decisions. Yeah. And, and sometimes we fall into that with ministering. I'm not a good, I must not be a good minister if none of my families are active or I must not be a very good elders quorum president because none of these people are doing what I've counseled them to do. Well, welcome to being like Christ. I mean, (laughs) how many people followed Christ? They killed him. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so ultimately there's there's a sense of, of making sure that we're not putting the success of our callings or our, viewing our value based on the decisions of other people. In fact, one of the kind of codependent metrics and mantras is when you say something like when so and so gets better, then I'll get better. Mm. Then so whatever, when their problem is fixed, then I can fix mine. And when you when you put it in that way, what you're doing is you're basically holding your own being and your own value hostage on the decisions of other people. And that happens in the church, in, excuse me, in different ways. Yeah. You
1: see it a lot in um, people who have family members that are going through a faith crisis, that they have to be the ones who give them the right information or the right web link or the right something that they can find to refute this new belief that they have and if they can't do that like what's it going to mean for their family eternally and all this worry when when the person who has doubts they're perfectly in god's hands and and, and god will take care of that not that mm. the family members aren't involved in it um but sometimes people take it to this level of responsibility that is
0: nonsensical. I can't believe after 18 years of raising my child and teaching them that they have agency, that they ended up using it. How horrible <laughs> that is unacceptable to me. Yeah. Um, it- Jen, I guess an- another question is, could it, could it flip the other way? Cause I have seen it and, and I'm, I'm trying to understand if this is also spiritual codependency where uh, a child leaves or a spouse or someone close to you leaves. And I've seen parents feel conflicted about staying in the church. Like I must be betraying this other. I'm willing to sacrifice my own testimony. Is that a version of spiritual codependency?
1: Yeah, I think it can be. You see it with um, people whose adult kids like leave the church over like LBGDQ issues yeah. And the parents feel like, how can I stay in this church that my child had to leave right. because they felt so oppressed by the policies of this church? Instead of being able to just stand as who they are, love their kid, and still be able to love their church. And the, the, those two things don't have to be in conflict, but one doesn't also have to bend to the other.
0: Yeah, and I would say if, if, that, if this situation sounds like you, go back and find our episode with the Macintoshes. Because they navigated that beautifully, and that's a that's a great episode. I want to talk about because this is something I knew nothing about, and uh, I think it's pretty well defined on this show that I'm not the smartest guy around. So I had to read this about 47 times. Talk about scrupulosity, because this I became fixated on on what scrup uh, scrupulosity. I can barely pronounce it, much less understand it. But you no, know, it's a really fascinating concept to me, and one that. I think I understand now, but talk about that because that, that was, this was all new to me.
1: Yeah. Scrupulosity is so it's similar to codependency. Neither one are in the DSM, right? Neither one of them are like diagnosable by yeah. the DSM being
0: the, the book of no diagnoses. Book.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Ne- neither one are in there. However, um, they are both things that are describing smaller sets of what is in the DSM, um, scrupulosity is a subset of OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, meaning it has two components. There are mental thoughts that the person obsesses on and compulsive behaviors that they must do in order to lower the anxiety of those obsessive thoughts. So add in the religious element, instead of a like a normal OCD person, <laughs> that's a funny phrase, but a, an OCD person who has to wash their hands exactly 47 times, this becomes a religious person who has to do some religious action, has a compulsion to lower the anxiety around their compulsive thoughts. Sometimes like in in normal OCD, it comes with sometimes like tics, which are um, their body movements that are not intentional, right? Even in scrupulosity, you can get that, that they develop tics that is an attempt to try and lower the anxiety. Ultimately, it ends up being a frustrating experience for them because the repetitive um, actions, whether they're religious or not, can't really lower the anxiety long term.
0: So, so I'll, I'll. Uh, this is this book is amazing. I, I keep saying it, but uh, and we'll definitely share the link for the book. But the reason I became so fascinated with scrupulosity is because. I was able to identify that for many years, I could not finish a prayer morning or night unless I named all of my children. I had to name them. I had to pray for them by name. And I don't know where that came from. I think many years ago, I probably heard somebody say, pray for people by name. And when I was really tired or whatever, to say, bless my children, I'd go to bed sometimes and then get out of bed again and pray for them all by name to ease my own anxiety. And that's what seems so fascinating to me.
1: There's nothing wrong with praying for your children by name. And in one sense, you can look at that and say what a beautiful lifelong habit you have of praying for your children by name. And yet in a particular moment, you have very little agency about if you're going to pray for them by name or if you're not, Mm -hmm. it's not a, it's not, it it wasn't actually a free choice for you.
0: No, I didn't feel comfortable. Like there was something bad. I would lay in bed and worry and I had to break myself of it. And I had to lay in bed and tell myself, Hey, God knows your children, (laughs) you know, and and sometimes they need that prayer by name. and, And now I'm to a point where, I can sometimes pray for two or three of them and then throw in a, and the rest of my kids (laughs) with whatever they need, you know, it's okay. And so that this, this really, man, did I learn a lot from this book? Um, One other concept that this, this is another sentence that I got really stopped on and I had to really ponder. Love does not require a victim. Boom. Boom. That was a big phrase, and at first I did not understand it at all. Walk us through what that means. Love does not require a victim.
2: Well, I can speak to my own personal side of this as a codependent, and then maybe Jen can give her side of it as well. But that was a concept for me that I had a really hard time with because, to me, my love... For my family, my whatever love expression that was taking place required me to suffer. It required me to lose something in order to get that person to have a better life, a happier life. And in a in the sense of to go back to the beginning, that codependent of an alcoholic, they be, your identity becomes the spouse of an alcoholic, and for a codependent, your identity becomes. I'm the guy that has to suffer so that other people don't. And part of the way that you you get that in your head is maybe a Latter-day Saint. Sometimes we hear the phrase, we're to be saviors on Mount Zion. And what, Mm. what did our Savior do? He suffered. He had the ultimate suffering for the ultimate good. Therefore... For me to be a good person and for me to express love means I need to suffer as well. But that became a very debilitating mindset to have and incredibly crushing. So the realization that love does not require a victim was something that I needed to learn, not only for myself so that I could give love, but so that I could receive love because it became a problem when I saw other people expressing love for me that weren't suffering. And, and I thought that's not real. That's not real love. Cause you're not suffering. It's, it's it completely irrational, right? Like you, you, you think about it and you go, what a ridiculous thing to say, but that's part of why your filter gets all messed up when you're in codependency is that you, your experience becomes everybody's experience. So As you see their behaviors, you apply your own rationale to it, and you make a ton of assumptions, which, again, goes back to this idea, love does not require a victim. And I had to kind of keep that as my mantra for a while because it was such a foreign idea to me. So
0: one of the things I learned from your book, um, and Jen, tell me if this is correct in my learning, is that like so many things in life... I have, before this book, I always thought there are people who are codependent and people who are not codependent. I am not codependent. And what I'm recognizing is like almost everything in life, there's a spectrum, there's a, there's a scale and that probably nobody's a zero would be my guess. I can't, I can't say that for sure, but I, I started recognizing more and more things in my own life that I was like, yeah, and especially some uh, relationships from the past, where I had a role, they had a role, other people had a role, and we would do this dance of these roles. Um, I guess I'm trying to get around to, first of all, is that true about since there's no diagnosis, especially? And then secondly, I'm trying to make the case that this book is really for everyone. It should not be coming across here that this is a book for codependent people. Does that make sense, Jen?
1: It does absolutely. You're right. Nobody's a zero, but nobody's a ten hundred percent of the time either. Like no one is 100% codependent in every single thing that they do. Most people sometimes do things because they feel compelled to do them, not out of their own agency, but out of this codependent desire. Most people who are listening maybe don't fit the the whole criteria for like what is a codependent. And yet I, I happen to think most people would absolutely benefit from this book because we all have our little tiny areas. How we actually structured this book is kind of trying to get at that. Like the first half of it is theory. It's yeah. lots of stories of, of how the theory plays out. The second half of the book is here's, I don't know, 20-ish, yeah, 20-ish areas yeah. of life that, Here's what codependency can look like in a faith crisis. Here's what it looks like in dating. Here's what it looks like in church callings. Here's what it looks like in missionary work and trying to get people to see like in this one area, you might have some tendencies that you wanna ask some questions about.
0: Yeah, and then you guys go into strategies for throughout all this, I mean, throughout, it's sort of, you know, it's a lot of identification, which is super helpful and then strategies for both spiritually as well and this is what i love about this book is it's not it's not a religious book and it's not a purely therapeutic book like i think without with someone with no faith background would struggle with understanding the book and i think someone who didn't want to see uh, you know, the uh, the therapeutic side of it would struggle with it. You guys really do walk uh, walk the thin line, balancing both sides.
1: Instead of trying to kind of recreate the wheel of like, here's here here's the solution. What we tried to do was say, here's some super helpful resources and why we yeah. find them helpful. Here's some some books you can read. Here's some therapeutic approaches that you can search out and ask for. Um, that we have found particularly helpful, and, and readers might too.
0: I, I think that part of it is so helpful because otherwise it would have left people going, oh, thank you for helping me identify my, my spiritual codependency. Now what? Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the resources I really want to push because I know more than one person um, who, when we think of addiction, we have a natural tendency to go to, oh, it must be drugs, alcohol, pornography, you know, whatever codependency, the 12 step program that the church runs is so perfect for codependency based on people I know who have been through it because it literally it I mean, I shouldn't say it literally becomes an addiction. I don't know that Jen, you would know better. It it has a lot of addictive qualities. That's for sure.
1: It it really does, because when people are acting in a codependent way, there's a super big dopamine hit that their brain is going to give them right? We can become addicted to anything that you get a dopamine hit from. Essentially, I mean, the the simplistic version of what's happening in drug and alcohol addiction is your brain produces the feel-good chemicals when you consume those substances. Your brain produces feel-good chemicals when you do all kinds of bad behaviors. And we tend to think only the bad behaviors then become bad. And we're trying to say, your brain can produce the feel-good substances, when you're doing the right behaviors, even if you're doing them for the wrong reasons, even if you're hurting yourself while you're doing them, and eating, even if you're hurting somebody else while you're doing them. So there is a sense in which it has some similar patterns to addiction.
0: Yeah, and, and that 12-step program that the church runs specifically is so valuable, and there are great meetings for people, and if people are thinking – Yeah, but I'm going to seem weird if I go for codependency. No, you will not be the only person trying to overcome codependency there. Um, A few weeks ago, we had on someone who wrote a book about uh, using the gospel to help with anxiety uh, specifically. And one of the things we tackled that I think is valuable here is how do you give a book like this as a gift we she and i talked about that and came up with a couple things because this is not the kind of book that you want to go oh my gosh happy birthday here read this book about (laughs) being spiritually codependent so let's talk about how you can give this as a gift
1: one of the audiences we had in mind in writing this book was church leaders bishops relief society presidents state presidents anybody who has a leadership position in church and finds that they lead the tiniest bit codependently they're going to benefit from this book but those people are also leaders of other leaders who sometimes lead codependently so if you want to get you wanted to give this book to your bishop or your relief society president you might say to them hey here's a great book that can help you lead people who sometimes get themselves into weird little codependent corners the church are also leading human beings who just happened in their own families and lives may be codependent.
2: Whether this is for the person you're giving it to or for the people that they minister to, there's a benefit to it, to the person to read it because we can become more aware of what's going on around us. And therefore we can be more sensitive to how to minister to them. If that, if that is their situation. So whether this is for you or the people around you, it has a benefit.
0: I think that caveat is really important, uh, depending on your audience. But I think sharing this with a bishop, a stake president, uh, you know, an elders quorum president, whatever it is, I I think is such a fantastic idea. Well, this is great. So let's talk about where people are going to get this book. If someone wants to read the book, where do they go, Nick?
2: You can go to Amazon and order a copy or an ebook version of it. And as Sean said, we'll have a link that you guys can check out on this uh, on this episode. I do want to point out one other thing, though, and, and this jumps back really quick to the audience for this. I I Again, my personal experience has been such that I recognize the many different ways that when codependency was used as the tool to calm my own anxiety, um, sometimes I got into the trap of feeling like, what I was feeling is probably the spirit because I felt less anxiety. Mm. But when in actuality, I wasn't feeling the spirit, I was just feeling less anxious. And that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that the thing that we chose to do was of the spirit. And that's humbling because you start to think maybe, maybe that's why the same 12 people have the same callings and they rotate through those in the ward because, (laughs) some leader somewhere feels that these are the people that cause them the least amount of anxiety. Um, and, and so there's just so many different areas that we can explore. None of this is meant to blame people or to make them feel guilty about it. And ultimately what we want people to do is figure out a way to live a more deliberate and, and more intentional choice of discipleship. And um, another place that they can hear us and check us out, we're going to be on the Leading Saints uh, Mental Health Summit that's coming up with one of your past guests, Kurt Francom.
0: Kurt Frankum of Leading
2: Saints, absolutely. So we're going to be presenting on essentially kind of like a virtual conference type thing, Jen and I, and we would love for people to come on and they can ask questions. And we also have a Facebook page. Um on codependent discipleship where they can go and we're going to have discussions there where people can pose questions and find support and it's going to be heavily moderated so it won't be one of those vicious nasty places online we're going to make it a really nice comfortable place where people can uh, get some help and direction
0: and again the book is called codependent discipleship
2: not a how-to guide
0: not a how-to guide I love it. Uh, So this is since since this is our first catching up episode, I can't ask you what being a member of the church means to you because you know we've already heard that from you guys. But I would love to wrap things up with either, and I didn't prepare you well for this, but either either a scripture or a hymn that you love and why, and you can choose either a scripture or a hymn and what uh, what it means to you. Either of you want to go first? Yeah, my
1: son who just joined the church, you know, a few months ago, he fell in love with the song that I hated. And I thought it was so embarrassing. If I could hide a collab. Mm. And I was like, Ian, why? Like, what? Are you just trying to be weird? What are you talking about? Um, and when you can get past the the weirdness of it, the, the whole, you know, the, the last three verses of just like, God perfecting everything in this one eternal round.
0: Um, yeah, in
1: some, in some ways, that's what we're talking about in this book is how do you, how do you move towards perfection? How do you pro- progress? You're not going to get it right now. Um, but how can you make it so that your life is, it is moving towards that. And I just, I love that hymn.
0: That is awesome that it turned around for you that way. Yeah. Leave it to your son. That's fantastic. Nick, how about you?
2: Um, I think that it would be fitting and proper to say that one of the hymns that has meant a lot to me over the years is the hymn, Where Can I Turn for Peace? And one of the things that I want to make sure that we are absolutely not saying with this book is any type of displacement of the central role and pivotal part that Jesus Christ plays in helping us to come unto Him to be true disciples of Jesus Christ, not compulsive puppets of, of a God that needs to pull our strings, but people that want to and choose to live a Christ-like life and that his life is in his example, his atonement is what brings us peace and what will ultimately bring us healing from our codependency. And so to me, if I, if I go back and I listen To The the choir actually has a really great version of of where can I turn for peace. I think it's a really great reminder of what the gospel can bring to us.
0: Mm. They are the authors of the new book, Codependent Discipleship. Jen Roach and Nicoletti, thank you so much for coming back on and sharing your Latter-day Lives with us. We
2: appreciate it. Thank you.
1: Yep, you bet. (laughs)
0: And my special thanks to my dear friends, Jen Roach and Nicoletti. I think for them to take the time to write this kind of book is just so awesome. And I was not gushing just because they are friends of mine. I promise you that. It is an amazing book. Go to Amazon, get the book. You will learn so much. I know I have. And uh, thank you again, Nick and Jen. You're doing great, great work. This week in my Latter-day life, uh, another step toward normalcy. I traveled somewhere other than San Diego. (laughs) Now, before the pandemic, I used to travel all over the country, up into Canada, down into Latin America, and I was on the road almost every week. And then that came to an abrupt halt. Well, over the last six or seven months, I have been going back to my office down in San Diego. Normally, otherwise, I work from home. Uh, But this past week, they actually had a customer-facing live event. When it was announced, we were sort of like, is this really going to happen? Are they actually going to do a live event? But sure enough, it moved forward. And so on Monday of this past week, I flew out to Nashville, Tennessee. First of all, a city that I really love. Nashville, the music, the food, the people, everything is wonderful in Nashville. But uh, as I arrived, I started getting really excited that we were going to be face-to-face with customers and vendors as well. Now, I've explained before, I work in the consumer electronics industry. I've been in this industry for about 23 years. And over the course of that time, Uh, I have made some really, really great friends. Actually, I just realized it's 24 years now. Uh, But I have some very close friends, especially other vendors, but customers as well. And on the opening night, we had sort of a reception outside in front of the building. And mind you, none of us have traveled for more than a year. We've all kept in touch over Facebook or email or phone calls or Skype or whatever, But we had not seen each other in person. And these other vendors, sort of my competitors, really most of them, uh, I get used to seeing them six, seven, eight times a year. We go out to dinner together when we're at events and we know about each other's families and they're just amazing people. I truly consider friends. So I went walking up to this reception and immediately saw my friend Joe. And my friend Joe came running over and threw his arms around me. And we gave each other a great big hug. And I was so happy. And then after Joe, I saw Kelby. And Kelby is just great. He and I used to be coworkers, and I was so happy to see it. And then our friend Louis was there. And then our friend Frank, Frank the Tank, Frank was there. And we just, I kept seeing people, and I loved them so much. And you know, we always get excited when we see each other. It's a lot of high fives, a lot of hugs, but this time it was different. We had come out on the other side of something uh, that we had all shared this experience together and we were so happy to see each other. And for the next two days, as we had this event, it was just so great seeing all my friends, other vendors, as well as customers. And I just, my heart was incredibly full and as I was flying home, I got to thinking about why did this mean so much to me? I mean, I have lots of great friends, but I think there's something to uh, the old phrase that uh, ab- uh, what is it? Uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. And it's true. There's something about when you're away from people. You think about when uh, someone you love goes away on a mission or moves away, when you see them again, it's just such a rush. And I got to thinking about just how long it's been since I've seen a lot of the people I love. I thought about my grandfather, my grandfather, who I love just so much. And I haven't seen him since I was 11 years old, because that's when he passed away. And it's been a long time. (laughs) I am not a young man. But someday I'll get to see him again. What is that reunion going to be like? As well as his wife, my grandmother, whom I haven't seen in gosh, I don't know, how long has it been? 15, 20 years? And my wife's grandparents and my brother and friends who have passed and all these people who are on the other side and people who will be during my lifetime, other people who will pass away. What a grand reunion awaits us. And I'm so grateful for the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all about seeing those people and we will see them again and we will know them again, and we will spend the eternities with them again, and I can think of nothing greater. And speaking of seeing people, I believe, and I have no idea how it's going to work, but we will see our Father in heaven again, and we will see our Savior, and we will have the opportunity to thank Him for all He did for us. And it's all about the people, and I'm so grateful grateful that we have a gospel so focused on these things, on the relationships we build. They are not just here in this earth. They go on and on. May we all just live worthy enough to have all of the blessings that come with this eternal life that is ahead of us. And that's what's happening this week in my Latter-day Life. Thank you so much for tuning in again this week. Um, Next week, we're going back to our more regular episode, and uh, looking forward to that. Uh, If you get a chance, I think on Apple Podcasts, let's see, Apple Podcasts, we are up to, 463 ratings. It would be wonderful to be over 500. It helps us when we're trying to get guests. It helps us... uh, to be found when people are searching for good content, we just really appreciate it. Another note uh, I've gotten over the last couple of weeks some really beautiful emails and Facebook messages and Instagram messages, and I have very much fallen behind. I apologize it, I try to be a little bit faster, but it, the last couple of weeks have just been total madness. I know that's an excuse, but I'm sorry if you have sent me a message, it did not go unread. I promise. And I will get back with you. So thank you so much. If you do want to get a hold of me, I can be reached at Sean at LatterdayLives.com. That's SHAWN at LatterdayLives.com. Well, I think that's about all we got for you this week. So until we meet again, there is a great big beautiful world out there. Go be in it. Just not of it. Thanks for listening.